Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I am Director of ECFR and I'm joining you this week for one of my favourite episodes of the year, which is our special podcast recorded live from the Munich Security Conference. And I'm very happy to welcome an all-star cast of ECFR colleagues who've been taking part in the security conference for the last couple of days and will help us make sense of the momentous geopolitical speeches that we have been listening to both on and off the record. First up, we have Kemi Grand, who is a relatively new traveller to to, uh, to uh, this podcast as, a, as an ECFR staff member. He's a distinguished policy fellow who is leading the organisation's work on defence and disruptive technologies in European security and has, is coming back after many years of, of coming to the conference as a NATO official. Hi, Kemi. Hi. Also coming back to podcast we have Jana Pulirin, who is the head of our Berlin office and a senior policy fellow for ECFR. And finally, um, back to our special Munich Security Conference podcast is Ulrika Franke, who is a senior policy fellow at ECFR. Hi, Mark. Welcome to all of you. We've all been in Munich for a few days now, listening to lots of the, the most powerful people in the world talking about not just what's happening in Ukraine, but how that fits into the wider picture. You've seen people from various different continents talking about different issues. Maybe we should just start with some of the, the uh, most sort of uh, visible speeches. Um, first day, there was a lot of, uh, of Europe there. We saw Emmanuel Macron, we saw Olaf Scholz. Uh, why don't we start with those two and we can maybe go through some of the other world leaders that have been here. Who wants to explain what... what um, should we start with all our shots, given that we're in Germany? <laughs> you listen to that very carefully. I was hoping you would ask me about Macron. Come on, I, I love doing Macron. All right, um, Olaf Scholz, yes, indeed. So he spoke second after, you haven't mentioned that yet, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, uh, who spoke via video link. But Olaf Scholz was, is, of course, here. And he gave a pretty good speech, I would say, um, I don't think he said anything particularly new in the sense that he didn't announce anything new that we hadn't heard before. Um, he, of course, talked about the war in Ukraine, Russia's aggression um, towards Ukraine and that Germany is supporting Ukraine. He made this point that he always likes to make that Germany is the most important supporter of Ukraine on the European continent. And I always feel that the channel is doing a lot of work here um, because otherwise, you know, in Europe, it would be the UK. Um, but but yeah, he, he mentioned this. He, he indicated that Germany would continue its support for Ukraine. The one thing I did pick up on that was somewhat new and that um, I found a bit frustrating is that he was talking about Germany going to spend 2% of its GDP on defense, which is actually a slight step down from the over 2% that he promised in his Zeitenwende speech on the 27th of February. So there's a little bit of a change. But but I also, would be super happy if we would spend 2% for <laughs> yeah, a change. Well, I mean, we are not going to reach this goal this year, so 2% is good. So <laughs> while, while we're having this nice intra-German <laughs> grumble about the, the, the Chancellor, one of the other things that came up were the tanks, the famous tanks, which, Jana, you've been, a, you've been very vocal on the topic of the tanks. In fact, we did a podcast very recently on it. He was saying in a slightly 
sort of catty way that a lot of the countries that had um, promised all the they had been putting all this pressure on on Germany to to make the decision on Leopards 2 hadn't actually delivered any tanks themselves. What did you make of that? I think he was quite outspoken. We haven't heard this from him personally before. Boris Pistorius has talked along the same lines uh, previously. And I think, of course, the Chancellor has a point here. I mean, once Germany had decided uh, not only to send uh, tanks itself, but also to basically grant export permission to other nations who want to do this, um, there was uh, some remarkable silence, um, or it took it took a very long time for countries to step forward. And for me, this was just um, a signal that not only had Germany not prepared these deliveries, kind of starting to refurbish um, old um, tanks, but that other European countries were also not really prepared to take this decision. Some of the criticism, I think, is unfair or is... Premature, actually, no? Yeah, we uh, premature uh, because, I mean, the... Two uh, leopard, uh, European Leopard coalitions are supposed to emerge, one with older Leopard versions led by Poland. I think um, what the polls say is that um, theirs is complete. The, the German-led one with the newer versions is uh, complicated. There are kind of 14 tanks coming from Germany, uh, plus I think three from Portugal, and the rest is still missing problem is that with this version, um, it's more complicated to find some in Europe. But of course, I can understand the Chancellor, um, because he was very much in front and center of the criticism, including from uh, me and colleagues. And now others aren't getting the same amount of criticism. But for example, with Finland, um, truth is that um, I think Finnish officials have made clear that Finland is going to be part of this initiative, but they keep all information about their deliveries secret. So I think there's also still some things we don't know um, that are going on in, in the background. Last sentence, for example, I just read that um, the Swedish defense minister has said on Swedish radio that um, Sweden is thinking about joining the, the tank. So, I so Kemi, you've been spending a lot of time with the Swedish defence minister. <laughs> I, I'd like you to, 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 to bridge us, you know, given that they got to grumble about the German Chancellor, I want you to, to have a chance. No, I want you to have a chance to grumble about the French I just defended the German we, Chancellor. But before we do that, what's your take on, I mean, you spent a long time in NATO looking at no, but the, I think there's decisions. a bit of a paradox with the, <laughs> the Schultz complaining in the sort of, it's, 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 it's interesting to hear the Chancellor complain about the slow decision-making by allies, you know, which was when he was so much criticized for the slow decision-making for months. So, so the, but, but he has a fair point, which is to say, okay, if we want to get this moving now, uh, uh, others have to make decisions and be more explicit. And there are a number of countries that floated their interest for joining the Leopard Coalition that have not made a decision. Spain is one of them, uh, uh, which floated pretty large numbers. There are issues with uh, Denmark. There are issues uh, indeed with other Nordics. And there are uh, other orders of leopards that have not taken any decision so far. So, so that's where we are. But I think it, it, what I take it as a positive is that it keeps the, the issue as a high-level political issue. And it's not something that, you know, in three months we will wake up and discover that nothing has happened. So the fact that he flagged this in Munich, and to, to be precise as an answer to a question, is important that he was pretty open about that. And he had it already in the speech, um, and he said this is a part of basically German leadership to, to, to make this work and to provide training mm -hmm. and to guarantee sustainability. I was very positively, and I'm not surprised, but, but I think that was very positive that he said that. 
And so another thing which was interesting, which is a theme which I hope we can pick up also, but also ran through the Macron speech, was that he was looking, you know, this is the kind of classic Western love fest. Mm. We talked about the return of the West when we were doing our podcast last January. It's there much more even this January than it was last January. But February. But February. February? February. But um, Macron, sorry, shot. <laughs> started his speech by quoting the, the Indian foreign minister or former foreign secretary saying that um, uh, that Europeans need to learn that their problems are not the world's and that the world's problems are not Europe's to, to change that perspective. And that kind of topic about the rest of the world outside of the West was uh, was quite a big theme for this year. And I think we should talk about that yeah. separately. Definitely. Yeah, I actually think it, it is so far the theme of this conference um, because so Macron as uh, one of the first speakers talked about this a lot. He was basically saying th- there are a lot of countries in other parts of the world, i.e. The, the global south, that do not see this conflict as a conflict that really concerns them. And we really need to kind of make the argument. And I think this argument is to be made, but um, I think we need to do this. And he also kind of said there's a certain, we we are being accused of a certain hypocrisy, as in, you know, if there's a war, if something is happening on the European continent, it's an international problem. But if something is happening on, say, the African continent, it's a regional problem. So I think this is a good point. And Scholz also mentioned this, but maybe even more forcefully, um, Kamala Harris, the U.S. vice president, spent a lot of time on this. Uh, Sana Marin uh, and uh, the Finnish prime minister, prime minister sorry, weeks. talked about this too. So this was definitely a, a big theme. And I think it's a really important one and something that took the, especially the Western Europeans, a moment to realize that not everyone is, you know, united against Russia. And so our next podcast, so I think it's an important thing. We should mention it. But spoiler alert, the next podcast on Friday is going to be all about this because we've done this big global opinion poll about our new report, which is called um, United West, Divided from the Rest. But but that's quite a good bridge anyway that you made to, to Macron. And no, I think Macron, what's, what's the, the big takeaway is that Macron was um, very explicit in his support for Ukraine and he's been really moving from a position of trying to find some negotiated solution not so long ago to uh, saying that um, uh, Russian victory was... Uh, not desirable to uh, clearly uh, wishing a Russian defeat. And he was pretty uh, critical on, on Russia's behavior, very tough on that. And he also came up with an agenda and a series of points that are pretty firm in terms of sustaining the support to Ukraine, building up the European uh, uh, agenda for that, uh, uh, investing in defense. And of course, that comes after the French decisions to put a lot of money in defense over the next seven years and being way above 2% uh, during that period with, a, with a, a, literally a doubling of the French defense budget by, uh, by the end of the decade compared to where we were not so long ago. So, so the, 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 that's interesting. And he also added a couple of new agenda items. Uh, one that is typically French, which is to talk about nuclear deterrence, but also uh, bringing back the arms control uh, element into the conversation, but also, but in a very, I thought, well-crafted manner that I don't think would uh, generate the sort of criticism that uh, sometimes Macron gets for his uh, Ukraine uh, comments. Uh, I think he was very, very careful in, in uh, making sure that he was he was there, and he actually said something quite new, which was that um, uh, you know. Um, he made mistakes on this issue and was uh, fooled by Putin, which, uh, you know, for Macron is quite a, quite a novel uh, statement. 
which echoes the fact that Zelensky said after visiting Paris that Macron had changed and this time had changed for real. <laughs> no, I just wanted to, to add a, an observation or a footnote. What I also thought was positive, not about the big speeches, but that Macron and Scholz uh, met with the Polish prime minister and that it was kind of... Uh, that a gathering of the Weimar uh, Triangle, uh, even though behind closed doors, but was possible because there has been so much, uh, I don't know, blaming um, other nations going on in Europe lately and the relationship between Germany and Poland is really not a good one. And so I thought that this was a, a I hope it was a good meeting, but at least that it took place, I think it was encouraging. The other thing Macron said is that we should start talking about peace and how the war ends, even as we're uh, arming Ukraine and helping them to, to fight it. But super interesting, just because I just came from that um, panel, Boris Pistorius said basically the same thing. He talked about the, uh, Ukraine. This is uh, the German defense minister. Yeah, people the yeah. new German defense yeah. minister. And um, Pistorius that, uh, said that uh, Ukraine must win. Yeah, that, that was interesting because Olaf Scholz doesn't say that. And, but he also, and later on the panel, said that, of course, um, we need to have an exit strategy at some point. But he said, yeah, we can start discussing this with the Ukrainians behind closed doors, but um, they need to negotiate from a position of strength, and that should be our priority now. So I think Which, it's very yeah, similar. No, to very the similar, I think, the French position, the, the German position, and I, I believe the American positions are pretty aligned on that. There, there is an interesting thing, which is on the one end, a very much clearer wish for Ukrainian victory, mm. a much more cautious approach to negotiation. Um, Macron explicitly said that the time was not for negotiation now, even though we needed to start about what a lasting peace would look like, but which is different from starting a negotiation. So my feeling listening to all these European leaders in particular is that we do have a war that has really very much become existential for many of them. They really understand that this is not something that's happening on our borders and that we look from afar, but that we need the support to, to Ukraine is really critical from a, for, for them. And, and, and that's, that's, for me, a tone that is somewhat different from what we could have had if the conference had, had taken place uh, six months ago. So one of the other European leaders uh, who was speaking today, in fact, was uh, Rishi Sunak. Um, he went in, started speaking And as he went up to the podium, a flood of delegates left the room. Honestly? Um, yeah, But was... not because of him. He came... Okay, this is right really... Exactly. So, so today was an enormously packed day with loads of, you know, one VIP speaking after the next. And then, you know, Kamala Harris... Uh, was there and the room was completely packed and after that we so that I could sit in a presidency <laughs> and so people no really felt like now is the moment I need a break so unfortunately <laughs> a lot of people missed Rishi Sunak so you as the only Brit so what did he say so not um, much I, so I'm going to speak as a German obviously <laughs> <laughs> no um, uh, basically he uh, so I, because the as I was saying I was trying to get into the room to, to listen to him but There was such a flood of people leaving after Kamala Harris that I missed the beginning of his speech because it took a long time for, for the crowds to get out. But anyway, when I finally got in, he talked uh, about the need for steadfast support for Ukraine, not hugely surprising given the British stance so far. What was perhaps new was some of the questions he answered about resetting and normalizing the relationship with European partners. And um, he uh, was asked specifically about how can you pretend to be uh, a geopolitical player as Britain if you can't sort out your relationship with your closest neighbours and sort out the Northern Ireland Protocol and have a normal relationship. And um, he, uh, 
actually talked about how important it is not just to have a good relationship with the neighbours, but with the EU itself, which doesn't sound like such a kind of radical or crazy idea. But given rhetoric from recent British governments, this is quite a big step forward. On that, uh, amongst the side events, was, uh, we were talking about the Weimar Triangle meeting between the Duda, Scholz and Macron. But the fact that uh, Richie Sunak had a bilateral with the von der Leyen and issued a joint declaration is quite meaningful in that context. And also the fact that Macron made a lot of rather friendly and explicit uh, comments about the fact that the UK was part of all of the processes he was mentioning. So you do have a, an interesting change of tone on both sides on the relationship between EU and EU countries. And EU. Yeah, no, I think it's more than a change of tone. I mean, you've seen now, um, you know, British politics is not every one of its long lasting, more durable periods. We've been throughout four prime ministers in the last few months. So I don't know how long this is going to last, but you've had First, Liz Truss showing up to the European political community, the UPC, mm-hmm. and then Sunak saying that he'll go along to it. You had the prospect of a deal on the Northern Ireland Protocol, which would be a big uh, uh, step forward in terms of a completely dysfunctional relationship with the EU itself. And now also the, looking forward towards a, a French-British summit um, where you know relations are looking at much less toxic and more normal than they have been at least since 2016. So this is this is all interesting. And I think, you know, one of the, the sort of positive side effects of, of Ukraine has been creating the circumstances for, for a bit less craziness in the relationship between the UK. Uh, I and thought it came with the translation of the Barnier Memoir in, in yeah. Yeah, and it's, uh, <laughs> its publication in London. So it's not only a transatlantic love feast, but also a European love feast. But I think more importantly, and I think we were kind of burying the lead here a little bit, I think most important is the kind of if you want to call it love, but the, the the real support that Ukraine is getting here, and most importantly, the Ukrainians that are here are getting. And there is a huge delegation. I mean, considering that this is a country at war and you know people have got stuff to do, there's a big delegation of Ukrainians um, here. I've been talking to several you know members of parliament and others. Of course, Volodymyr Zelensky gave the first speech of the conference. And what really struck me is that they have a very united message. I think every Ukrainian I've talked to have been has been talking about the importance of speed. It's all about speed. It's about, you know, getting weapons quickly, winning quickly, you know, ending this quickly. Um, there was a line from, I think that was from, from one of the MPs I talked to, who said, you know, if you deliver weapons in a year, we don't even know who would be using them. So really kind of driving home this um, this point. And um, I think this this is also very much shaping and kind of coloring the debates here. I think on this, what's striking is indeed, who would have thought that 11, uh, you know, close to a year into this war, there would be such a unity. I think the unity is in a way stronger than it was in the first weeks of the war, and the unity also in terms of support. And the Ukrainians are, understand that, so now they're pushing really hard on the on the, the speed of support, the delivery and the sustainability of this. What I found really a positive surprise um, was that I had the opportunity to listen to a few high-ranking Republicans who were really clear also uh, when it came to Republican support for Ukraine, talking about the fringes in the Republican Party. I think they kind of were not really clear about the challenge because I think five five kind of crazy Republicans uh, can can take the House of um, Representatives hostage. And so... But I think Mitch we, McConnell really drove home this point. I think there were a few that were really like, this is their message, right? Should we, should we 
I think the Ukrainian thing is a really interesting point and one of the really interesting themes actually of the, the conference, which might link us a bit to the Americans who are the, the, the elephant in the room that we haven't spoken about as much, but who were there in huge numbers actually. As an Largest delegation ever. Okay, but sorry, I've been to Munich, I think for the last four years or four you know, conferences and every time someone said, this is the largest delegation from the US ever, I think it just gets bigger every year. It's called Westfulness. The, uh, yeah. the, but, but just to, to go on to that, one of the big themes of the Americas, so one was this sort of attempt to, to reassure Europeans that America is there for the long term from McConnell, from other Republicans. be interesting to hear how credible any of you think this is, given um, uh, how polarised American politics is and some of the other noises that we've heard within the Republican Party. Secondly, whether this is a healthy message for Europeans to to hear, given where we started with uh, the kind of speed of transformation of, of European defence. But the other th- big theme uh, which came out from a lot of these things was about accountability for, for war crimes. It's a big theme for Kamala Harris. But why don't we start with the first one, you know, this whole question about Americans here to stay and, and how yeah, I just want to complete the, the, the picture yeah. that, I, that I got from the Republican side. It was, yeah, we love you Europeans, but uh, we love you only if you really now put your money where your mouth is. Speeches are nice, but uh, you need to basically match our contributions. That was uh, kind of the second part of the message. It was not only we love you kind of unconditionally, but... Uh, and do you think that, that was heard? No, that, that, is, that brings me back to your second <laughs> question. So I, at the moment, uh, am a bit worried, actually, that we take the kind of honeymoon and transatlantic relation, uh, relations a bit too, too much for granted um, and that, we, that this is an, a welcome opportunity for Europeans to push the snooze button and to not progress. But then again, I don't know. I mean, we have a significant rise in defense budgets uh, in Europe. There is uh, a lot of pressure coming from Ukraine to sustain Ukraine because even the United States cannot produce enough ammunition. So I think, I mean, the Europeans would be stupid just to be naive and yeah. believe that, yeah. And talking about produce, I also found it striking that there were there were quite a few discussions on European industrial, so military industrial capabilities, which is something I haven't heard that much in, you know, the past. So mm-hmm. everyone was kind of really emphasizing that, that Europe needs kind of industrial capabilities. So I, I love think institutions. In <laughs> institutions. I think that, that, that this at least has been heard. Yeah. yeah it, was, it was clear in the comments by both uh, von der Leyen and Macron that they were very specific on that. To come back to the Americans, I think there are two very important points that came out of this. Uh, indeed, uh, the message was that of unity, transatlantic love fest, and, and so on. Uh, and Kamala Harris and, and, and uh, Tony Blinken were very explicit on that. I think the message is nevertheless, indeed, spend more. And uh, uh, second, uh, uh, the, the, there is a second message, uh, which is also a Kamala Harris interestingly spoke quite a bit about China in our Ukraine mm-hmm. comments. Flagging that uh, the Chinese were supporting the Russians and that they, we, we should rely on that and so on and so forth. So I think there is a China conversation that's, so it's not only spend more, but also continue to pay Absolutely. attention to China. Not only pay attention, but basically fall in line. Or yeah. kind of, but kind of we side with you here and maybe you can side with us there. And how do you think that went down with the Europeans? I'm not sure if they've gotten it. Uh, I honestly didn't hear it as strongly as you. Maybe I'm exaggerating. uh, But I've heard it. I've heard kind of the necessity for transatlantic unity coming from the Americans on the China topic. 
I've heard this in each and every conversation. Yeah. So that does bring us to bridge to maybe the last person that we should mention. Wang Yi, speaking on behalf of China, talked in quite interesting ways. One of the first speakers I heard to, to talk about European strategic autonomy. I didn't hear that much about that from Emmanuel Macron and from Olaf Scholz, but the Chinese um, were definitely talking about the need for European strategic autonomy and not to coded message to his local audience. Um, but he was also questioned about the, the balloon and uh, took quite a kind of tough stance on that. Who wants to talk about that? I'm happy to take the okay. balloon because I thought that that was really quite striking. So his speech. First of all, it really was interesting in and of itself. And I remember, I don't know, two or three years ago, there already was a Chinese representative who gave a speech that said nothing whatsoever. And I think this was different here. So already in the speech, he was talking about, you know, any increase in China's strength is an increase in the hope of peace for humanity, which I thought was quite the line. Um, He said that China would put forward a position paper on the political settlement of the war in Ukraine. Very interesting. But on the balloon, he used such strong words that I was really struck. So he said, first of all, civilian balloon veered off course due to wind, not our problem, or sorry, not our fault. And the the reaction from the US, and here I quote the translation that I got, was absurd and hysterical, 100% an abuse of the use of force. We do not accept this. And this does not show that the US is strong. On the contrary, it shows the opposite. It was preposterous and it was done to divert from domestic problems. There you go. Quite, you know, there was no room for think, interpretation I there. I an additional point in his speech, which I thought was interesting, because there was this notion with the peace plan, which I thought was really in, uh, valuable, and uh, that they, they, they sort of stepped in with their own plan. But also a quick comment on um, uh, n- uh, nuclear issues and the fact that uh, uh, any nuclear use would not be acceptable, which was also a message to the Russians. So, so I think that they, they, they played it well in, in uh, this time, and including the driving the wedge between the Americans and the Europeans on being the, the, the prime sponsors for strategic autonomy. So that brings to an end, I think, the, the discussion of the Munich Security Conference. But there's one thing left to do on the podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Ulrike, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Um, so I just finished an amazing book, uh, which I think was already recommended once this year um, or last year by our former colleague Tara. Um, and it's called Au Café de la Ville Perdue from Anaïs Lobet. And it's a brilliant book so far, only available in French, but anyone who reads French, highly recommend it. It's a novel on the kind of Cyprus conflict and it is so well written and so interesting. So very much recommended. And what's on your book, Shabiana? Um, well, I recommend the Munich Security Conference Report. <laughs> yeah, it's an easy one, I know. But I think, uh, I think it's, it's called revision. It's very much appropriate to kind of um, hint at it uh, in this podcast. And what about you, Kevin? It's a, it's a good one, but I'd rather uh, read police stories these days uh, to recover from uh, the, the dangerous world of strategic affairs. And uh, there is a very good uh, novel by the Le Monde correspondent in in, uh, in Russia, which is about politics in Ukraine, which is called Les Loups. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, it's a bit outdated in terms of politics because it predates the war, but it's uh, very interesting about the dynamics between the oligarchs and, the, and, and political power. Benoit Bitkin. Okay, cool. So... If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please do let other people know about it by writing about it on your social media page or ours and hopefully heading to whatever platform you've used to download this podcast from and subscribing. And while you're there, if you want to give us a five-star rating and a positive review, we won't complain. 
We'll put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu. But for now, from Kemi Hong, Ulrike Franke, Jana Pulierin, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher for this podcast is Hanan Sundar, and the editor of the website.